It's a day that I've been looking forward to for a long time. This is, in many ways, our celebration of Jesus' resurrection is the centerpiece of the Christian calendar for churches all over the world. But this one's got a special significance to me, and I hope to you, because it's our first chance as this local body, as Trinity Church, at this time and place, to worship together in light of Jesus' resurrection. We join together now with churches all over the world, celebrating a truth that's the most radical claim that has ever been uttered in all of history. And it's a claim that gives unmatched hope that Jesus was really dead. There's no denying that. But now he's not. Now, I'll admit, last couple of years, I've been convicted of the fact that I don't typically think very much about the resurrection except at Easter time. I mean, I just got a reminder of this a few uh, weeks back. And we were going through the Gospel of Mark as a congregation, and we came to chapter 16 where Jesus' resurrection is reported. And so we, I preached on the resurrection, and we sang a lot of the same songs that we've already sung this morning. And I remember thinking how strange it was to sing things like Christ the Lord is risen today, not on Easter. And I know many of you expressed a similar reaction to those songs. And I, I've been convicted about it because of a, of a disconnect between my emphases, the kinds of things that I normally think about when I think about the gospel, and the emphases of the early church when they were doing their preaching. So, for example, I think evangelicals today, we are all about the death of Jesus, right? We, we like to talk about the blood, right? And that's good. The death of Jesus is the centerpiece, too. It's right at the heart of what the gospel teaches. But when you compare our perhaps overemphasis on the death of Jesus to, to the earliest preaching that we have recorded in history, which is recorded in the, the book of Acts, what you see there is that they never preached Christ when they didn't preach him as the resurrected Savior. It starts with the first sermon that's recorded in Christian history. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where he's in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit has just come down on the followers of Jesus and they're speaking in all kinds of tongues that they didn't know before and people are getting converted all over the city. We're told that that day 3,000 people come to know Jesus. Peter's sermon's recorded for us in the book of Acts and, and at the heart of it is his message that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet's promise of resurrection. And he calls people to believe in Jesus specifically on the basis of the fact that he's raised from the dead. And that in that truth, there's the promise of forgiveness of sins. That's Peter's message in Acts chapter 2. Chapter 4, you get the same thing continuing. Peter and other people get thrown into prison. And what the writer of Acts tells us is that they're thrown into prison specifically because they were preaching the resurrection from the dead. Later at the end of chapter 4, same thing. It's a summary by the writer of Acts, the historian who's recording this. And he's summarizing the message of the church to that point. And at the heart of his summary is that they were preaching, giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You can scan throughout the rest of the book and you'll see that pattern repeated over and over. So the question is, why does the resurrection matter so much? Can you answer that one? I have a, a personal knowledge of the fact that most of you in here can answer the reason that Jesus had to die. You can do that quickly and succinctly. Can you answer why the resurrection matters so much? If Jesus' death is the payment for a penalty, why didn't he just stay dead? Why did he have to rise again to wipe away our sins? That's the question. So the driving point for us today is that the resurrection completes the gospel message and it gives shape to our lives as Christians 
And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 4 and 5. We're going to flesh out those verses, the key verses at the turn of those two chapters to understand why this is the case. That means that for this morning, what we're not going to do is say much about why I believe, many others throughout history have believed that the resurrection actually happened. Evidence for its historical accuracy as an account. A few weeks back in that sermon that I mentioned on the resurrection, we did a lot of that. And I would encourage you, if, if those are questions for you, to speak with me after the service. I'd love to talk to you in depth about that issue. And, and if not, after the service, maybe you could go to our website and listen to the message uh, preached back in, in mid-March. This morning, I want to begin with the fact of his resurrection and try to tease out what that fact, why that fact matters so much, and what that fact has to say to us as believers trying to live out of that fact. That's where we're headed this morning. Would you stand with me first as we read God's word from Romans chapter 4? This is Romans chapter 4 verse 23 through chapter 5 verse 4, the word of the Lord. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. This is God's word. You can be seated. Where I want us to begin this morning is on the issue of the resurrection itself and and how Paul explains through this overall passage why the resurrection matters so much. What we're teasing out here is the connection between the resurrection and faith. Faith has been Paul's main subject all the way up to this point in the letter to the Romans. What he's been trying to do is set up the fact that we're not made right with God. We don't have fellowship with him or peace with him on the basis of obedience to the law, but instead we have peace with him because of faith in something he does for us. So the the contrast is between something we might do for ourselves, something we know from experience we've failed to do, which is to perfectly obey him, and and something he does for us and provides to our account through Jesus Christ. Paul's been contrasting these two ways, and Abraham has been his key example so far. Chapter 4 begins with Abraham, and and all the way up until the the verse that we read, Abraham is who he's talking about. That's that's the reference in the pronoun. Where we started, we we read, it was counted to him. The him there is, is Abraham. What was counted to him is the righteousness of God, a right standing before God. And it was counted to him, that righteousness was counted to him, not because he was obedient to the law. Paul's Paul's argued there wasn't a strict written law at the time for him to be obedient to. And that verse saying that he was righteous was written before Abraham was even circumcised. People had pointed to circumcision as kind of the, the summary of the law that of those who are trying to gain favor with God through their obedience. Well, Abraham was was considered righteous before God before he was even circumcised. So that can't be why he's okay. No, it's something else. It's the fact that 
he did not distrust God's promises in spite of the fact that, he, that his life was so full of, of suffering. That's Paul's point in the verses immediately before what we read. He hoped against hope that he would become the father of many nations just like he'd been promised. And he didn't weaken in faith when he considered how old his body was or, or when he considered the barrenness of his wife's womb. Verse 20 says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's the Abraham example that's been presented so far. And now, now he applies that truth that we're made right with God, not by obedience, but by a confidence, a faith in his promises. He applies that truth to everybody. He says it wasn't just written about Abraham for Abraham's own sake. That was written for us so that we would know that if we were to believe in him, to rest our lives on his promises, that righteousness would be ours too. When he makes this point in verse 24, that these words were written for us too, and that it will also be counted righteousness to us. But what he says is that the way he describes us as those who will be considered righteous is those who believe in him, referring to God, who raised Jesus from the dead. You see that? Those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. So I think what he's saying is that our confidence, our faith, the faith that's going to count us righteous before God is is inseparable from the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. So why is that the case? What does resurrection have to do with the salvation by faith that he's been talking about all the way up until this point? I think to answer that question, we've got to look at the last verse in chapter 4. That's a verse where he expands on what he said in, in the previous verse. So our faith is in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. That's what he's claimed. And now he further defines Jesus. And in that definition of Jesus we get an explanation for why the resurrection mattered so much. What he says, verse 25, about Jesus, is that he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. He was delivered to death for our trespasses and raised resurrection for our justification. What's the connection between these two? I think we're most familiar with the first piece to that puzzle. Jesus being delivered up for our trespasses. It's an idea as old as the Old Testament itself. That sin is a deep problem that has to be dealt with. That God, if he is to have any kind of justice at all, can no sooner turn away from sin and leave it unpunished than any human judge could turn away from uh, some mass murderer and just pretend like it didn't happen and let him go free. If justice is to have any meaning, God's got to punish sin. It's in his character to do that. And so the Old Testament full of sacrifices that are made to try to, to try to account for or to symbolize this brokenness between God and what he had made. But there's also in the Old Testament a sense that these sacrifices are not enough, that something, there's some balance that still hangs there. There's a reason these sacrifices have to be made over and over and over again. And so in Isaiah chapter 53 an ancient prophecy given hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. We see this image of one who would become a sacrifice for many, who would be crushed by God for the iniquities of other people. This verse is almost a direct quote from Isaiah 53. Jesus is the one given as a sacrifice for the sins that other people have committed. He's delivered up for our trespasses. That's the first piece to the puzzle. What we see there is that sin was the cause of his death. 
Sin caused his death. That's the key, I think, to understanding the purpose of the next clause about his resurrection. Because the same set of words are used. The same relationship is there. If he was delivered up, given to death, because of our trespasses, our sin, then he is raised to new life, the resurrection, because of our justification. There's a parallel here. He was raised because of our justification. So what does that mean? What is justification, and how could justification cause him to rise again from the dead? That's, that's the pressing question that this chapter leaves us with. Justification is a legal term. It, it means right standing. It means everything is set like it ought to be. So, so if a guy was to rob a bank and get 20 years in prison, he would be considered justified once he'd served his 20 years. The penalty being in prison, no longer stands over him. It's no longer imposed on him because it's been completed, right? It's been fulfilled. He is now justified because the, the debt has been paid. Penalty only holds over him as long as the offense remains unpaid. So, so if you take that analogy and apply it to the terms of the Bible, the penalty for sin is consistently described as death. Ever since... Genesis 3, which we looked at as a congregation last week, we've seen that God punishes rebellion against his authority with a removal of himself. That's ultimately what death is. In sin, we act like God's not there. We act as if he doesn't have authority over us, and we put ourselves in his place. And the, the penalty for our sin fits the crime. It's to put us permanently outside of the presence of God. He essentially gives us what we ask for. The Bible describes God as a source of everything that's good, of all light and beauty, of everything that's true, and death is the absence of all light and beauty and everything that is true. That's the penalty for death, and it's an unbroken cycle from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament. It's the unsolvable human problem. It's a cycle that can't be broken until you get to Jesus. Jesus' resurrection, what it shows is that it is so powerful that it is so fully, his death was, has been so fully acceptable that it robs death of the power that it had held over us. It empties that penalty of its effectiveness, and it has to turn him loose because it no longer has any rightful hold on him. Just like the person who gets out of prison because he's done his time, so we are freed from death because the penalty that had imposed death on us is now fully paid. That's the point. That's why Paul says that he is raised for our justification. We're right with God. Death has no power. So here's where the truth of the resurrection meets our faith. That truth that Jesus now lives in spite of the fact that he was once dead, that truth is the foundation for our faith. Paul's been claiming all along, we're saved by faith, not by anything that we can do. We're saved by a life-shaping commitment to stake ourselves, our everything, on the claim that God is with us and for us in Jesus. Why should we have faith that in spite of our sin we can be right with God? Paul says specifically, we have faith in God as the one who raised Jesus from the dead. What we have faith in is that because he raised Jesus from the dead, he no longer holds us accountable for anything related to our sin. That debt has been fully paid. Where the Old Testament sacrifices had to be made again and again every single year, 
Jesus' death is offered once for all. It's fully affected, and that is proven by the fact that he's alive. Jesus was raised for our justification. That's the connection between resurrection and faith. So now, if that's the truth that we're trying to work out, if that's the truth that we're trying to, the implications of which we're trying to tease out and and, and work into our lives, we go with Paul into chapter 5. Because here's a turning point in his letter. Up until this point, he's been trying to make that case that we're right with God only because we have faith in something that that God has done for us, not anything we could do for ourselves. Now, in chapter 5, we get a therefore. He's drawing conclusions. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, therefore, since everything in chapters 1 through 4 is true, now we have peace with God. What I want us to focus in on this morning, the rest of our time, is to drill down on the the fact that the resurrection means we have peace with God in spite of our sin. And it means we have hope in spite of our suffering. The resurrection is a promise that we have peace with God in spite of our sin and that we have hope in spite of our suffering. This peace that Paul begins with flows directly out of what he's just been saying. The fact that Jesus is alive shows that for us there's no more outstanding debt, there's no more reason for hostility between God and us, no matter how badly we fail. The promise of the resurrection is that Jesus' death didn't just make peace possible, so that he sort of laid a foundation that we can build on as we work towards peace with God. The resurrection is a promise that that peace is accomplished. It is over and done for, no matter how different that may look from our own lives our situation. I think Paul, when he says we've got peace with God in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, I think, he's, I think he's talking about a literal peace because the image that we have of what sin is and our condition apart from Christ is one of hostility, one of uh, a, a state of, of being enemy of God. I think that when we looked at Genesis 3, we saw what that was. was sin is, is kind of an insurrection. God has created everything that is. He's a king over it. We are his delegates. We serve under his authority. And in sin, we try to replace his authority and put ourselves where he belongs. Sin, in other words, is an insurgency not unlike what we see going on in Libya today. Here you've got an, an authority over this country, and now you have some, an insurrection going on. People who dispute that authority and are fighting it. That's what we're doing with God when we sin. Now, Paul says, because of Jesus' resurrection, because he was raised for our justification, therefore, that insurrection is over. We've been reconciled to God, he'll say later in chapter 5. God no longer stands against us. And we stand now not because we fixed ourselves, not because we came yielding to his authority, but because he fixed us and brought us back to himself. The resurrection proves that peace is our condition even if we keep on sinning, when we don't live as if we really are reconciled to him. And the reason that's true The reason that we have peace in spite of the fact that we may continue rebelling against God is that that peace is one-sided. It was accomplished by God for us, not in partnership with us. I think that's where this text is driving. And one of the most beautiful reasons to read it this way, as a one-sided peace that is secure because God and through Jesus and proven through his resurrection, God has secured it. One of the best reasons to read the text that way is that phrase in verse 2. Through Jesus, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I love the image of us standing, not 
because of our own strength, but because of grace, because God is giving us something that we don't deserve. Where our condition, our condition of peace with God is dependent not on us cleaning up our act first, but because he has given us grace to stand on. It's because we now relate to him as father and not as enemy. And I can't look at these images of God as father anymore without thinking about my own new role as a father, without making analogies to my own experience with my son. And one of his, one of his favorite things to do now is to try to stand up, not on his own, but he loves for me to hold him, maybe hold his arms to where he can't fall, and he can use those leg muscles. He likes to bounce up and down and, and, and try to stay stable. Now, if you were to look at him from a distance, especially if you didn't see that I was holding him up, he would be the perfect picture of insecurity. I mean, his legs are wobbling all over the place. His hips are swinging. He looks like Elvis. He's just trying to find some sort of balance and stay up. But he's standing, and he's going to continue standing, not because of his own strength, but because of the strength of his father, who may not be some sort of weightlifter, but has enough strength to make sure he's not going to fall. He stands because of my grace to him. And it's a perfect security because I'm strong enough to make sure he's not going to fall. And I've decided because of my love for him that he's not going to fall. I'm not going to let it happen. I think that's the image that Paul is trying to draw for us here. It's a peace. It's a grace that we stand in. And what that means is that we don't stand for anything that we've brought to the table, but because God has decided not to let us fall. The challenge for us is to realize this peace that's been won for us by Jesus and proven by his resurrection in our lives. That's the real challenge. Paul's talking about a literal peace, that that, that hostility is now over. There's peace between you and God, and you're reconciled. But I think what he's calling us to is also a psychological, a, a spiritual and emotional peace in our minds and our hearts. He's calling us to rest peacefully, in the truth that there is nothing left to be done that must be done for us to to stand justified before God. This is a challenge because we don't often feel that way. We feel guilty. We feel condemned. We are angst-ridden because we continue to sin. And I'm not suggesting that our sin shouldn't grieve us. It grieves God, and there is a an appropriate godly sorrow, Paul tells us, that leads to repentance. What I'm saying is that we can't stay there. I'm speaking to those among us who have thought things, said things, done things from which you think maybe there's no turning back. The weight of what you have done in your life is one that you carry around, and it causes you insecurity about your relationship with God because you're not sure that God could ever forgive someone for the things that you've done. Redemption is... A, a long shot in your mind because you think that your sin is, is too weighty to be carried by anyone else. Now, I'm going to admit to you, your sin is serious. You can look to the cross for evidence of that. Our sin is so serious that it cost the Son of God his life to deal with it. It's serious enough to remove any possibility that there is anything you can add to your standing before God. There is... There is no balance here to be struck between Jesus' work and yours that put together will amount to enough for you to be okay. You've got nothing to bring to the table. But the resurrection, the fact that death has no more power 
is proof that Jesus' death is enough, that you don't have to add anything to it. And now, in light of that fact, when you give in to the guilt that weighs down on you, when you act as if this resurrection truth isn't true, as if you stand or fall before God based on what you've done, when you give in to that, you're living as if Jesus' death is not enough. Anytime you're, rather, anytime you're confronted with your own weaknesses as a follower of Christ, with the ongoing presence of sin in your life, what that should do is not turn you to despair as if Jesus' death and resurrection are not powerful enough to save you. But it should drive you back to the cross again to remind yourself of how much Jesus gave for you and of how wonderfully sufficient his death is to accomplish what he set out to accomplish. Your sin, in light of the resurrection, in light of the fact that we have peace with God, your sin is now an encouragement to turn to him over and over again as the one Savior who can carry the weight of your, your failure. The promise of the resurrection is that we have a peace, peace with God in spite of the fact that we continue to fail, and that, that our sin is not too great for the friend of sinners who came here precisely to forgive and who through his death and resurrection won the right to forgive. That's the resurrection and peace. Finally, what does the resurrection have to do with hope? I think in the next couple of verses, in chapter 5, we see that Jesus... Resurrection means that ours is a hope that grows even stronger through times of suffering. This is, a, this is a, a little bit of a paradox here. It's not an instinctive truth. The resurrection has tremendous implications for how we understand and approach suffering in this life. When we encounter suffering, not if we encounter suffering, but, but when we encounter suffering. And I'm deeply aware that for many of you in this room, Easter comes on the backside this year of a really tough year. For some of you, the toughest year of your lives. Even a congregation as, as small as ours is, I'm, I'm continually amazed by the scale and the variety of suffering that we walk together through. The resurrection is an encouragement to see suffering in a new light, to see suffering as an opportunity, not as a threat. The resurrection is a promise an all-pervasive truth that encourages us to see suffering not as, as something that could shake our standing in this world or our standing before God, but as an opportunity, not as a threat. That's where Paul's taking us in verses 3 and 4. The whole discussion that we've just seen of Jesus and his resurrection and, and why his death and resurrection matter and work together and can't be separated. That whole discussion comes right between two discussions of suffering. He points us to Abraham's example, and the reason Abraham's faith is so important, he tells us, is that Abraham continued to believe and didn't distrust God in spite of the fact that everything, all the circumstances that seemed to matter, were stacked against the promises being true or possible. And now, Paul, on the backside of his discussion of resurrection, sends us to this chain where suffering is something we rejoice in because it leads to endurance and to character and ultimately to hope. Paul's take on the resurrection is not some sort of Pollyanna departure from reality, some sort of naive optimism as if Jesus' resurrection takes all our problems in this life away. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it changes the way we look at them. 
Paul says we rejoice in the hope of glory, verse 2, but that even more than that, we boast or rejoice in suffering or trial. Why is that the case? That's the case because suffering is something like a refining fire. Suffering is something that strengthens whatever is already in you. Martin Luther wrote a commentary on Romans hundreds of years ago, and he, he made this special point. When he came to these verses in his commentary, what he said was that suffering or tribulation bring out in a more refined or highlighted way what's already in your heart. Typically, what we say is that we react based on what we experience, that our circumstances change how we feel and act. What, what he would say is that our circumstances are just an opportunity for showing what's already in you. So, if you're an angry or bitter or unbelieving person, when you suffer, you're going to become more angry, more bitter, more unbelieving. They're going to get expanded and strengthened and refined through your suffering. One who has faith and hope will see that faith and hope deepened and strengthened and sharpened through times of suffering. Hope paradoxically grows stronger. There are a couple reasons that that's true, I think. One is that, that hope is kind of, think of hope kind of like a muscle that you have to work out in order for it to, to be strong. It has to need to be used for it to develop the kind of strength that's going to last a lifetime. Just like hope is often a byproduct of, of good circumstances. And when those circumstances shift, you realize, oh, that what you thought was hope or true faith in God was really just a veneer over unbelief. And the fact that you no longer are living in good circumstances shows how, how weak your hope already was. The best analogy I can think of to that is my own uh, limited experience with um, with with exercise. So I've, you know, I'm an out of shape guy, and I'm kind of cool with that. And I have been my whole life, but I do try to jog every now and then. And for most of my life, my my leg muscles, I've got hope in them. They don't let me down. I, they they are what I need to walk from my house to my car, and then from my car to my office, and back to my car, and back to my house. And they work pretty well for the first mile of a three-mile run. I'm feeling fine. I've got a lot of hope in them at that point. But once I hit around mile two, well, my hope isn't what it was because my circumstances have shifted, and now it's forced to work itself out in the context of new and more challenging circumstances. So at that point, it either goes away or it gets stronger, and I have more reason to trust my legs because they've weathered those circumstances. They've become stronger because of the adversity. I think that's what Paul is saying by, by connecting hope with suffering in this chain in verses 3 and 4. He says that, that we boast, that we actually rejoice when we encounter suffering. And the reason is that that suffering produces endurance. And then that endurance produces better character. And in that character, we have a more refined, a stronger hope. And it's a hope that we are even more hopeful in because we've seen what it's taken us through and that it didn't fail us. It becomes stronger because of the suffering. Suffering is an opportunity to work out your hope. That's one reason that suffering and hope are so deeply connected and that the resurrection provides such a promise for hope in spite of circumstances. Another reason is that in the context of suffering, what is hoped for specifically here? the resurrection that we look to as our final and eternal destiny. 
in the context of the suffering and the weaknesses and the, the drawbacks that we experience in this life, the, hope, the hoped-for thing, the object of our hope, the, the resurrection promise that we live forever with, in, in a world of no tears and no sorrow, that thing becomes more beautiful in comparison to the suffering. Just like a light shines so much more brightly in comparison to darkness, just like a glass of water tastes so much sweeter on the backside of some sort of intense exercise or work, so for the one who has the hope of the resurrection, suffering becomes an opportunity to hope more fully, to strip away what's left in you of self-reliance and to fall more completely on Jesus. Because of the resurrection, we hope and boast and rejoice in suffering. It was also Luther, in the same commentary, who said that if you run from suffering, if as a Christian, one who claims to follow Jesus, you try to avoid suffering as it comes to you, then what you're really trying to do is run from Jesus. Because it is only in times of need, in times of sorrow and grief, in times when you recognize the limits of your own ability, your own strength, it's only in those times that Jesus appears to you as one who is strong to save, a help in time of need, a savior to those who can't do anything for themselves. If you don't want to experience suffering, Luther says, you don't want to experience that Jesus. It's a paradoxical relationship. It doesn't come by instinct. Our instinct tells us when we respond, when we, when we experience suffering, our instinct tells us to respond to that as God letting us down. Or maybe God is mad at us and punishing us. Or we get down on ourselves and we assume that we're the ones who are responsible for what we're going through. And so we carry around not just the weight of the suffering, but a guilt for getting ourselves into that place. Ultimately, if your encounter with suffering drives you away from God, it's not going to drive you anywhere more hopeful. Ultimately, without God, in control of the things that happen in this world, good and bad, the only explanation you have for suffering is that you've either screwed up and now you're going to experience the, the results of that failure, or no one is doing anything about it. It just happens. It's a bunch of random circumstances that you're helpless before, that are, that are knocking you around against any of your best attempts to avoid them. That's all you've got, unless there's a God who's in control. But if God is in control, and if he has proven by sending his own son to give his life for you, that he loves you above even preserving the life of his son, if he has proven to you that even something as horrible, as terrifying and terrible as the death of his son can be turned to a good end in the resurrection then when you encounter trial, you don't have to worry that it's happening to you against your control and will end in some sort of meaningless sorrow. But you can respond to it with the one who holds fast to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection to new life and know that it, just as that death, is a path to a new and more full hope that will survive the worst that this world has to offer. That's the message of Romans 4 and 5. I pray beginning right now, that it will be lived out by each of us. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you did not hesitate to send your own son. Even more, we thank you for finding his death so perfectly acceptable to you that it 
wipes away all trace of the worst sin that we could commit. We thank you for the proof of that that we have in the fact that Jesus lives again. And so what we ask from you is a supernatural ability to connect with this truth on a deep and pervasive level in our lives. We pray for eyes to see it in spite of the vivid circumstances that seem to cause doubt about its truthfulness. When the things that we suffer from in this world seem so much more vivid and real and true than the promises you made so long ago, we pray that you would give us deeper and more pervasive, more clear vision of the truth of these promises in spite of the the ways that we suffer in this life. We know that that's possible because we have a long record of faithful believers who have weathered storms that are even unimaginable by us and have come out of them or died to new life through them with the confidence that your promises won't fail. We ask for the faith of Abraham, for the faith of Paul, that stands strong no matter the circumstances. And we pray for this now in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.